Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. Our current sermon series is from the book of 1 Corinthians. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we come to chapter 15. We come to a, a new section of the epistle. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And chapter 15 is a long chapter, by the way. And uh, uh, we're going to be spending a little bit of time here. But read along with me as we, we come to verses 1 through 11. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. As I said, this is a, a new section. This is a, a new part uh, of the book of 1 Corinthians. And so let's just very quickly review where we've been uh, here in uh, 1 Corinthians. In chapters 1 through 6, uh, Paul was diff addressing different problems within the church. If you can remember all the way back to that, uh, he was ad addressing things like division. There was division among the church. Some were saying, we follow Paul, we follow Peter, we follow this one, we follow that one. Uh, there was, so there was dividing the church. It was bringing division in the church. Then he talked about indifference. Uh, the indifference that they had to the, to, the, to the faith and really to their, their walk with the Lord, to injustice. Uh, they were taking one another to court. They were suing one another. And immorality. And remember chapter 5, Paul said there are things going on in the church among you as believers that would never even be accepted in the world. And so we saw verses, chapters 1 through 6, different problems that Paul saw in the church there at Corinth. Then in chapters 7 through 14, Paul began addressing questions that the church had sent to him. Remember, they, they sent him some questions, uh, things uh, involving marriage and, and divorce and, and celibacy and those kind of things. And then uh, got into Christian liberty. Can we, can we eat meat offered to idols? And, and what does all that even mean? And, and what is Christian liberty all about? And then over the last few chapters, 12, 13, and 14, he's been talking about spirituality and, and the use and the misuse of our spiritual gifts. Uh, and now we come to chapter 15. In chapter 15, Paul shares some very strong apostolic teaching, if you will, uh, uh, concerning the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection in general, not only just of Christ, but of, of us as well. 
But even in this great doctrinal teaching on the resurrection, Paul is still trying to correct some thinking that is going on there in the church at Corinth. Uh, and and uh, maybe some thinking even in our church today. So he is teaching and he's trying to correct some of their misconceptions or some of their misthoughts about the resurrection. So in chapters 1 through 14, Paul is correcting their conduct, if you will. Uh, he is, he is uh, correcting their practices, how they conduct themselves in their, their daily lives, how they are living. Are they living for Christ? Are they living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? Now as you come to chapter 15, Paul wants to correct their doctrine, all right, their beliefs. And I really believe that chapter 15 is important because if our doctrine is wrong, our daily lifestyle is liable to be wrong, all right? And so doctrine is very, very important. Uh, and, you know, if, if our belief system is what it ought to be, if we are understanding Scripture, then we are more likely to be living Scripture and living the way Christ wants us uh, to live. I think the key verse in the chapter is the, the verse we'll actually see next week. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection? Evidently, some within the church at Corinth were actually denying the resurrection of the body. And uh, that's a, a problem. That's a, a real problem in the church that Paul needs to correct. And that problem, again, perhaps is a cultural issue. That problem, again, may be reflecting the culture of that day and the pagan culture of that day that, that the, the people had grown up with there in Corinth. Because the Greeks had some different thoughts on things. Uh, Greek philosophy taught dualism, uh, that there was dualism. And, and dualism was this, matter is evil, spirit is good. And what, why that is so important is because the matter, our, our matter is what? It's our physical body. It's our physical body. And so since the body, since the physical body was considered to be evil by the Greeks, uh, and they said not only that, nothing can change that. There is nothing you can do to change the fact that your body is evil. Your body is bad. And nothing can be done to change that. And that led to two divergent philosophies in Greek life that these people in Corinth would have been exposed to when they were pagans. And the first one was called Stoicism. The Stoics uh, would teach that, uh, that because our body is evil, because matter is bad, then we need to deny ourselves our physical desires, right? And we become aesthetics, we become stoics, and we are just denying ourselves. And not only is it a matter of, I'm not going to eat that piece of cake, you know, it, it's, it's bringing our body under strong subjection. And, and they, would not, uh, uh, they would not fulfill any of their physical desires. On the other side... There was a, a group of believe, uh, philosophy about uh, Epicureanism. Now, Epicureanism said, uh, since the body is bad, 
since the body is evil anyway and there's nothing I can do about it, then I might as well do whatever I want to do. Because what difference does it make? You know, the body is bad, the body is evil, and so just live it up. And that led to all kinds of uncontrolled abuses of the body, of the, the physical body. So those were the two contrasting thoughts that these people in Corinth had grown up with. The, this Greek philosophy that, that the body is, is evil and there's nothing you can do about it. So either you are a stoic and, and you just, uh, you, uh, you believe in, in total physical control and, and desire, just forgetting all your physical desires, or you are an Epicureanism, you're, you're, you, you believe in, hey, anything goes, and whatever you want, let, let, it, let it go. That led to some real problems within the church. The Greeks, and again, that's what the culture they lived in, saw their hope in, uh, being in the spirit being finally released from the body all right and that philosophy appear begins to appear within the body of uh, of the church at Corinth uh, they, that this idea that it's just the spirit's going to be released from the body someday and that body's going to go into the ground or that body's going to and never nothing ever will happen to that body again now if you can remember all the way back to chapter 3 and other places in the, in the book, Paul has already addressed these believers as being carnal Christians. They are immature believers. They're, they're not real deep in the faith, if you will. And that seems to have hindered them in their growth uh, in, in these doctrines. And these, that's why these human philosophies, these Greek philosophies, were, were sneaking into the church. And folks, let me just bring it up to date for us. So many times we get so enamored with the culture around us and, and we are not in the word as, as much as we ought to be that we are influenced by our culture and that changes the way we live. And that seems to be what was going on in the church at Corinth. They were being influenced by the, the world around them and by the human philosophies of their cult, culture. And so the doctrinal problem may well have been at the very heart of the problems they were having in the church. Might have been why there was division in the church. Might have been why there was sexual immorality in the church. Might have been why there was, you know, abuse of spiritual gifts within the church. You know, these were reflected in this doctrinal problem. So, Paul wants to address that. The biblical truth is this. The physical body is an essential part of how God created us. Remember back in the garden, God created man how? Body, soul, and spirit. Right? All three go together. And so the work of Christ on the cross was not only to save my soul, and that's what we talk about a lot of times, isn't it? You know, how many souls have been saved? And that is vitally important but the work of Christ on the cross not only saved our soul, but it was to save our body as well. See, Paul is setting forth this dissertation on the resurrection to show these folks and to show us that Christ's victory on the cross was complete. 
and it involves the body as well as the soul and the spirit. Let's jump ahead for a moment. Go, to, go down to verse 54. And here's verses that we often read at a, at a graveside service. But look at what Paul says. So when this corruptible, what is he talking about there? The body, right? The corruptible is the body. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, what does that mean? What has happened to the body? He's died, all right? We've died. When this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the what? Victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says Christ's death on the cross for sin was complete. It not only saves my soul, it not only saves my spirit, it not only saves that, that part of me, you know, that's inside. It also is going to save my body. It's also going to save my body. And that's what he's trying to get, get at here in chapter 15. It appears that the Corinthians were apparently willing to accept the fact that Christ physically arose from the dead. That Christ's resurrection did happen, but they seem to have said, if, if we can read this properly, that his resurrection was a unique thing. And the major thrust of Paul's argument in this chapter is Christ's resurrection and the believer's resurrection stand or fall together. Basically what they were saying is, okay, we believe that Christ rose from the dead, but we're not going to. Christ's resurrection was unique, okay? I, we have to accept the fact he rose from the dead, but, but we're not going to. And that seems to be the teaching that was going on in the church. That seems to be the teaching that Paul is trying to correct here. And, and Paul is trying to say to them, logically, that doesn't make sense. Logically, you cannot hold to the resurrection of Christ from the dead and at the same time deny the general truth of the resurrection of the body. You can't say, yeah, you're right, Christ rose from the dead, but I'm not going to. Paul says it doesn't make logical sense. And in fact, what he's going to teach us is that Christ's resurrection proves that we are also going to do what? Rise from the dead. So Paul begins by teaching this doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. For that's essential to the gospel. And we can't deny the resurrection, the principle of the resurrection, without denying the very truth of the gospel. And so this morning we want to begin by establishing the fact that the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 11. Paul's going to appeal to the Corinthians on the basis of their own salvation. I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of your own salvation. You know, uh, and that the resurrection is to take, you know, to take the resurrection away. 
To say that the resurrection is not important is to take away the very foundation upon which our salvation is established. Paul's going to say to us here, this is like trying to take away, to say the resurrection is not important. Or to say that the resurrection of the body is never going to happen. For you to sit there and think, you know what, when we die we just go into the grave and that's as far as it ever goes. Paul says that's like trying to build a building without a foundation. And if we build a building without a foundation, what's going to happen? The building's going to collapse. You know, I, when we were on vacation, uh, and you guys, I, you guys are in A15 service, so I guess you didn't see it. The, the little cherub sang deep and wide. You remember that song, deep and wide, deep and Well, they kind of sang that song. But it kind of reminds me of the other song we sang as kids. The wise man built his house upon the, the rock. And the house did what? It stood firm. You see, if we take away the resurrection, we're not building on a rock. We're building our, our life on something that's going to fall flat. And so Paul wants to look at the, the relationship between the resurrection and the gospel message. Because the truth of the gospel is bound up in the doctrine of resurrection. So let's look at this this morning. In verses 1 through 4, we see the content of the, of the gospel. And he starts by saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. The word declare uh, really means to make known or, or to, to give to someone so that you come to an understanding. You know, when maybe someone's trying to explain something to you and finally they say it in a way that you understand it and you say what? Oh, I get it. That's what the word declare means. Paul says, I'm trying to declare this to you so that you can say, oh, I understand. I get it. I see what you're saying. And in a sense, I really think there's a little bit of a rebuke here to the church uh, because Paul has already preached the gospel to them. And in fact, we know that he not only preached it, but what did they do with it? They received it, right? Otherwise, they, they are claiming to be Christians. They've already received the gospel. And in fact, their standing before God rests only in the gospel. And so Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you, I tried to make this so you can understand the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you also now stand. It was the gospel that brought them to salvation. If indeed they are really believing, Paul said. And yet somehow it seems now that they're doubting the very heart of the gospel. The very heart of the gospel. And so Paul says, it's necessary for me to tell you again, to declare it to you again, to bring you to an understanding of the content of the basic gospel message. You know, let's think about the gospel for a moment. The word gospel, and I could have asked you this, and you, most of you would have known it, it simply means good news. It simply means good news. And salvation comes by receiving that good news, all right? And, you know, whenever you get good news, that's always, you know, don't you hate it when someone comes up to you and says, I've got some good news and some 
bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Yeah, hit me with one of them. I don't care because you're going to tell me both of them anyways, right? Paul says, let me share with you the good news, the gospel. And the word gospel simply means good news. And I think it's important that we re-examine, as, as he's making these people here, the content of the gospel. For us this morning, I think it's re really important for us to re-examine the content of the gospel. For a person cannot be saved by, by merely believing in God. You know, I talked to a lot of folks, and I talked to a lot of folks about salvation. And I, and I ask them, what is it that you are believing in? And a lot of times I get this response. I, I, I just believe in God. I believe in God all my life. Do you realize that's not salvation? Just believing in God is not salvation. Nor is just believing in Jesus. Whatever that may mean. Well, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus even is the Son of God. See, that's not salvation. Salvation becomes a reality when we, in simple faith, rest in the, what God has said about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's when salvation becomes a reality. That when I understand that Christ died on the cross, and we're going to get into this here in a moment, but when he died on the, cro on the cross for what? For my sin. And I put my faith and trust in what God says about what Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection on my behalf. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Paul says, by which also you are saved. When you receive the gospel, you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. We discover salvation is ours as we hold fast to what? The simple truth of the gospel. The simple truth of the gospel. Folks, faith that is not resting in the gospel is vain faith. It's empty faith. It's useless faith. Faith in itself does not save us because faith could be trusting in the wrong thing. You know, we, we spent two weeks in Europe. We saw some amazing churches, beautiful churches, elaborate churches, and we saw even some people in those churches who were very sincere in what they believed. But it was all empty. It was dead. It's dead faith. Because faith is only as good as the object of my faith. You know, and saving faith is only the gospel. And if you are believing in something else that's going to get you to heaven besides the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, and that he paid the price there on Calvary for your sins, and that's not, if that's not what you're trusting in to get you to heaven, then you're not, your faith is in vain. 
You have empty faith. You can't be just believing in, in God. It's more than just believing in the church. Well, I come to church every Sunday. And, and can I even say it's more than just accepting the fact that Christ died on the cross? It's believing that what he did on the cross took care of my sin. That, that's faith. That's faith. True faith is laying a hold of what God says about the work of Christ on our behalf. True faith is holding on to that, holding fast to that, verse 2 says, as my only faith. What does Paul say in other places? Don't add anything to that faith. You add works to that faith, then it's vain faith. You add this to that faith, then it's vain faith. Faith is only good when we put our faith in what God says is going to get us into heaven. And please, well, don't use it. Well, pastor, I think that I'm going to get to heaven because of this. You know what? It doesn't, I don't want to offend you. Well, it doesn't really matter what you think. All that matters is what God says. And that's what we have to hold on to. You can believe all you want that this is going to get you heaven or that's going to get you heaven or this is going to get you. God says only putting your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross on your behalf. That's the only thing that's going to get you to heaven. Let me ask you this morning. In what are you trusting right now? Do you have true faith or is it an empty faith? Are you believing in vain? Because you're not resting your faith in the gospel message as presented in Scripture. Well, you say, what is that message? Well, glad you asked. Verses 3 and 4, Paul says, let me explain the true gospel to you again. Let me explain to you what the, the, the true gospel is. And he says there's two great truths in the gospel. He says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Just before we get to those two great truths, I think the beginning of the verse, Paul says, hey, I'm not making this up. This is not something I came up with on my own. And it's interesting, when you study the life of the Apostle Paul, the liberal theologians are trying to tell us, and I don't want to muddy the water here, but that Paul had a different gospel than everybody else. And Paul says, no, 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 no. My gospel is the gospel, and this is what I've delivered to you. And I didn't make this up. I got this from God. You know, this is what I'm delivering to you, that which I also received. And two great truths. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The first great truth that you have to believe in order to be saved, is that Christ died for your sins. And it's not just that Jesus Christ died. That's a historical fact, right? It's not just that he died on the cross. Oh, I believe that Christ died on the cross. That's not, you realize that's not saving faith? That's not saving faith. You have to add to it the reason 
that he died on that cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of what? My sin. It's not that he just died on the cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty. He died on the cross bearing our sin. He died in my place. He died in your place. His death was a sacrificial death. It was a substitutionary death. He died for me. That's what I have to believe. That's what you have to believe. And knowing that we are sinners, we put our faith in the fact that Jesus Christ there on Calvary paid the penalty of my sin. He, he died for my sin. And he paid the debt of my sin. And what does Paul say? That fact is declared in Scripture. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Where is that in the Scriptures? All through the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is a great passage. But there are many others. And the, the fact of the matter is Christ died on the cross for our sins. Let's go on. Verse 4, and that he was then what? Buried. Are you with me? He was buried. The, the very fact that he died was seen in his burial. Right? He didn't swoon on the cross. You know, he, he didn't just pass out. He died. And the, that fact is seen in the fact that they then buried him. It was a literal death. His body died and was buried. And that fact paves the way for the second great truth of the gospel. Look at the second great truth. He rose again the third day, once again, according to the scriptures. Fact number one. Christ died on the cross for my sin. Fact number two, Christ rose again the third day. And it is the resurrection that is the proof that the penalty of sin was fully paid. And so God can now declare the sinner, the believing sinner, you and I, when we put our faith and trust in what Christ did on the cross, God can now declare us to be righteous because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. Which was also according to the scriptures. He rose again just as God said he would. The resurrection is proven by the fact, and we're going to get to that here in a moment, that, that he was seen by many other people. Look at verse 5. He was seen by, by Cephas and then by the twelve and, and, and on and on. So the two great truths of the gospel. Are you believing in these two great truths? Christ died on the cross for your sin. That means you admit that you're a sinner. There's no other way to get to heaven. He died for my sin. And secondly, he rose again the third day. Because the resurrection, and we'll see here in a minute, the resurrection is proof that God accepted the penalty for sin. Well, let's move on. Let's think about the certainty of the resurrection in verses 5 through 8. The gospel rests on the resurrection for the only way we know that Christ did, in fact, effectively die for sin is that God raised him from the dead. You know, 
On our trip, we also saw a lot of graveyards. We also saw a lot of historic people that, that are buried. And I've told you many times, I love to go to graveyards. I'm weird. But it's fascinating to see the, the graves of some of these famous people and whatever. But the truth of the matter is, they're all wet right there in their grave. Jesus Christ is not in the grave. His, his, his tomb is empty. And that fact proves that God has accepted the penalty that he paid for our sin. If God did not accept the penalty that Christ paid for our sin, if, God did, if Christ dying on the cross did not pay the penalty of your and I's sin, he would never have rose again. He, that the, the, the penalty for sin would not have been paid. And now, since that is a crucial fact in the gospel, the, the question is, can we believe the resurrection? There's all kinds of people out there that are trying to tell you even today, oh, that's just hogwash. He never rose from the dead. Yeah, he might have been a historical person, but, and he might have died, but there is no resurrection. That's just fairy tale. Well, the very clear answer Paul gives us is yes. We can know for sure that Christ rose from the dead. And the reason was he was seen by many after the resurrection. There are many eyewitnesses. And Paul now gives us official evidence. Verse 5, he was seen by Cephas, who is Peter, and the twelve. And Peter is mentioned. Peter seems to be the leader of the twelve. And both Peter and the other disciples saw him not just once, but several times. Paul says, go, go talk to Peter in the 12. You don't like that one? Go to verse 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some, like you this morning, have fallen asleep. I mean, think about it. There's not quite 500 here, but between the two services, there will be over 500. Christ appeared, if Christ appeared to this group, you know, and, and you heard later that uh, you weren't here this morning, but you, you heard later that Christ appeared and you started going around the room and asking these people and they all said what? Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, he was here. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, he was here. Saw him. Who were, who were these 500? We're not really sure. This was possibly the planned gathering up in Galilee. Remember the, that the angels referenced? And go, go to Galilee. He promised to meet you there. Uh, and, and what do we know about this group? Not a whole lot, but what does the verse say? Most of them are still living. You can go ask them. You can go talk to them. There's, there's no doubt about it. You know, some of them have fallen asleep, yeah. Some of them had died, yeah, but most of them are still alive. What about, let's move on. Then we have James, uh, verse 7. James and then all of the apostles. James is most probably the half-brother of Christ. Uh, the writer of the epistle of James. Uh, he comes to faith after the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. 
Remember, as, as one of his brothers, uh, uh, the brothers of Christ uh, did not believe in him during his li earthly life, uh, during the gospel time, but, but they came to believe in him after the death and the resurrection. And James becomes the leader of the early church. And, uh, you know, then all of the other apostles saw the risen Christ. We've seen already in the book of 1 Corinthians, that's part of the, the qualifications to be an apostle. You had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And then Paul says, finally, I saw the Lord. Uh, verse 8, then last of all, uh, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul said, I saw him. And that phrase, one born out of due time, that's kind of a strange phrase. And I don't want to get into that a lot this morning. Our time's getting out of here. But uh, it's actually a phrase that would have been used for a miscarriage or even for an abortion. And, and I think what Paul is saying here is that, that it was abnormal. My, my eyewitness account of seeing the risen Lord was, was almost violent compared to the way in which the other apostles saw him. Uh, remember, Paul saw the Lord, what? Because the Lord attacked him on the road to Damascus and threw him off a horse and knocked him down and said, Paul, Paul, why are you doing this? So Paul saw Christ and was called to be an apostle in a different manner than the other apostles. All of the other appearances of the risen Christ came before his ascension into heaven. Paul's came after and so he uses that uh, as one born out of due, due time, kind of a, as one born in a different way than all the rest. But it did not make him any less of an apostle. Well, let's move on. Finally, the certification for the gospel comes in verses 9 through 11. And Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle but I per because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, we preach, so we preach, and so you believe. Paul here talks about his eyewitness, uh, the eyewitness appearance of, of Christ, his, the experience that he had. And now he feels it necessary to defend his apostleship a little bit. And to, to show that the gospel that he preaches is no different than the gospel preached by the other apostles. He recognizes his unworthiness to be an apostle. He persecuted the church. And yet he's an apostle because of the grace of God. His apostleship is an abnormal one. He's not from the band of the disciples. In fact, he was an enemy. A persecutor. But God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. And uh, the certification of his apostleship is there for all the world to see. And the message that he preaches and the message that he preached in Corinth is in exact agreement with the message of all the other apostles. You see, the gospel, folks, rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I saw him. I saw the Lord. And to deny the resurrection, as these folks were doing, is to cast aside the very foundation of your faith, the very foundation of your salvation. How about you today? Let's, let's take everything we've talked about 
Maybe you got lost on some of it. Maybe you fell asleep through some of it. Let's bring it all back to the two great truths. As you sit here this morning, in what are you trusting to get you to heaven? In what are you believing to get you to heaven? If it's anything other than the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again the third day proclaiming victory over sin and death and hell, then you have vain faith. You have empty faith. What are you believing in today? What are you trusting in today? Do you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? And the proof that that, that death was, was accepted by God is that God raised him from the dead. That's the gospel. What are you believing in today? Let's pray. Father, as we close our service this morning, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for my sins. Who died for the sins of the whole world. The sins of everyone in this room this morning. Lord, I pray that as we close this service that we would take an honest look at what we believe. I'm sure there are some here today that don't believe anything. They're here for whatever reason, but down deep in their heart, they, they don't believe that Christ died for their sin. Or at least they have not put their faith in that. If they're trusting in anything, it's not the gospel message. Lord, I pray that you do a great work in their heart right now. Help them to see that they're lost, that they're a sinner, they're bound for hell. That if their life were to end today, they'd spend eternity separated from you in torment. Lord, bring them to salvation this morning. Lord, I'm sure there are also others here who, who are religious, who think they have a relationship with you. But as we've talked this morning, the gospel isn't really what they've been trusting in. Maybe they've been trusting in the fact that they go to church or they're a good person. But Lord, help them to see it's only the gospel. It's only the death of Christ on the cross for their sin that, that, that will save them. Lord, bring them to yourself today as well. Father, for those of us who truly trust in you, Lord, may today we be encouraged by the fact that you are a risen Savior. And because of that, one day we know that we will go to be with you. Lord, in the weeks ahead, as we look at the resurrection, help us to understand it. Help us to see what it means. And Lord, again, I just pray that if there's anyone here today that does not have faith in Christ, may today be their day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on our church, located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.